All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 11th day of July, 2017. I do want to remind you that I'm the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. And my friend and colleague Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? You can subscribe to that by going to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. Also want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And uh, I want to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, New Range Gold Corp., Klondike Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., GMV Minerals, Osprey Gold Development, and Fireweed Zinc. I've uh, titled today's show, Deciphering the Fed for Financial Survival. Chris Hamilton visits for the first time. Michael Oliver, good old reliable Michael, is with us. He'll be speaking to you in just a moment. And Peter Talman will return at about a quarter past the hour. Um, You know, Michael has assured us that we are in the early stages of a bull market in commodities with gold in the lead and a bear market in the dollar, the T-bonds, the equity markets perched on the precipice. I think I'm probably typifying what he, his view on that, and we'll ask him just in a second. But over the last couple of weeks, gold has been fairly weak, and most technical analysts who base their forecasts on price charts rather than momentum, as Michael does, are suggesting that, woe is me, we better get the heck out of here. Uh, in light of gold's recent weakness uh, in, in just a few seconds, well, we're going to hear what Michael has to say. And uh, regardless of the price of gold, I agree with John Kaiser, who's on this show once in a while. He suggests that we are on the verge of a discovery-driven market, at least in the exploration and lower cap gold mining and and, um, mineral mining companies. Uh, And he believes that we are on the verge of some magnificent world-class discoveries. And I am most proud to have two very out-of-the-box thinking companies as sponsors to this show. Uh, And one of those two are going to be with me. I'm talking about... Uh, Peter Talman, he's going to be with me. Uh, he's uh, the, the CEO of Klondike Gold. And uh, also, of course, there's Quentin Henning, uh, Novo Resources, which I talk about often on this show. My, Those are my number one and number two picks personally. 
they're two of the stocks that I talk about most often. RN Resources is another one I like. There's lots of them. I think this is the most exciting time for the exploration stocks. And as I was just telling Michael a minute or so ago, uh, as a person who follows exploration stories, they take a long time to unfold, all I really want to know is that we're not in a bear market. Are we in a bear market? Then I better lighten up big time with my exploration stocks. But if we're in a bull market, well, then this is really a great time. And and we're in an early stages of bull market where most of the people aren't even aware that we're in a bull market, a stealth bull market, if you will, in gold. And that's even the best of times because these things aren't overpriced yet, these exploration stocks uh, for the most part. So in any event, um, we're going to be talking to Chris Hamilton then at half past the hour, and he has some really interesting ideas about what's happening in the uh, in the markets and the, with interest rates, and, and he ties a lot of his views to population growth and decline. In fact, he'll show us that the, maybe one of the things the Fed isn't paying any attention to uh, is a declining population. In fact, Chris will tell us, I believe, that we are headed towards a depopulation in the world, not even though India and Africa are expanding. Overall, the global population is in decline uh, or will soon be in decline, according to what Chris has to say, and that has a very profound impact on the economies of the world. Chris has some very interesting things, and interestingly enough, I think they jive very well with Michael Oliver's view. So, Michael is with us now. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to talk to you. Always assuring to talk to you. You calm my nerves in many ways, Michael. And, you know, as I was saying, uh, I just want to know that we're not in a bear market. I mean, I'm happy to know when prices are going up. My gold shares go up very nicely, usually are correlated very closely to the price of gold. Uh, exploration stocks, not so much, because the value there is when new amounts of gold or silver or copper, whatever, are being found and, and economically viable, proven to be so. But uh, we have had a, a bit of nervy um, nervousness here in the gold market. I see just before showtime, 12.15 gold. It's up a little bit from earlier today. What are you, What is your take on gold right now? Well, when we look at gold, uh, yes, we, we look at price charts. Everybody does that. You know, and you, you take your ruler out with your crayon and draw your lines and so forth. And it's what everybody sees. And sometimes it's right and sometimes it's not. Um, what we do is we detrend price against a mean. We measure price action in relation to various means, long-term means, short-term means, and so forth. Well, obviously, when you have short-term trends, they come and go you know, maybe every couple of months, you know, uptrend, downtrend, uptrend, measured by looking at daily action and so forth. But if you're looking at the big picture, uh, the first thing to look at is annual momentum. And it's quite often the case when annual momentum trends change measurably, when you can look at an oscillator of annual momentum of the S&P or gold or whatever, or oil, um, and you see a massive structure, like you would on a price chart, like a big trend mm-hmm. line or a big flat floor or something like that. Mm-hmm. But you don't see it on the price, you see it on momentum. When that breaks through, quite often there's an initial new trend move. It, it could be a collapse in case of a new bear market or a, a, a sharp up in the case of a new bull market. But almost always, almost always, there is a return trip by the price action back toward either the prior low or the prior high in the case of a topping action that confuses the people looking at the price charts. If you remember gold in 2011, it peaked above 1900 briefly. 
But once we opened 2012, annual momentum of gold collapsed through structures. There was a, that was, we were opened uh, in the mid-1600s, I think, at that point. We dropped $120 or something of that sort and turned around and rallied all the way back to 1780. Mm. Not back to the mm. highs, but one heck of a rally, a $200-plus mm-hmm. rally that made you feel like, oh, the bull market's still underway at just a correction. But mm-hmm. annual momentum was broken, totally destroyed, like a bridge on the River Kwai. It was in shambles. Uh, so when you looked at the momentum chart, you looked at the price chart, you saw two different realities. Well, it took an entire year and a quarter after that initial breakage of annual momentum in January of 2012 before you started to get the real collapse in gold, which started in April 2013. And again, then you were in the 1600s, and all of a sudden, three months later, you were under 1200. Hmm. Okay, so it, it, yeah. it like... It, it held it back. It fought. It tried to act like, oh, I'm still a bull. And there were yeah. big debates. All during that $100 swings, up and down. But Momentum said, no, you're dead. It was just oh, a matter so. of when would they give it up. Well, reverse that now. Yeah. Uh, in February of last year, gold broke out over massive annual momentum structures that said, okay, I've now turned up. And everything since then, though some sharp declines and measured by shorter-term metrics, look negative maybe, you know, for several weeks or a few months even. But that annual momentum never has changed. And therefore, I'm, I, I've not even been forced into a neutral posture. Um, and my, my neutral number for this, this sell-off is if you trade 1197. Our low mm-hmm. is 1204. Right now we're above 1216. Uh, so if they don't hit 1197, I don't even go to neutral. Um, and I can't go bearish because annual momentum simply isn't structured to go bearish. Therefore, mm-hmm. my confidence level is still high that this is major above the low congestion. The low was 10, under 1050, if you recall, late 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're in the 1200s, and we're coiling and twisting. Now, if you get back up to about 1260, which is short of the recent highs, there's two highs up there, 1290 plus. Mm-hmm. If you get a monthly close back over 1260, and you get the GDX, which is now 2170, to close any week out at 2270 or higher, one point above where you are now. As far as I'm concerned, this congestive process is over. We're going to resume with vigor upside. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's where I stand on the gold market. Uh, and when I look at other markets like the dollar or, or the euro, inverse of that, euro is making new highs for the year today. Mm. It's also at price levels that if you close a week here or close a month where it is right now, above 115, it's a new high weekly close for the last two and a half years or a new high monthly close for the last two and a half years. So the dollar is weakening, the euro is strengthening. Uh, I think the yen is also about to strengthen. So anyway, we have a shift in the Forex markets that a lot of people are still debating about. I'm not. I'm pretty convinced it's done. It's, it's shifted. Uh, and then in the other commodity markets, uh, we've been focused primarily this year, not on gold, but on grains. Mm-hmm. And grains are, we've called a grain explosion. Well, they have exploded in the last uh, several weeks. Corn led the way, rice, uh, oats, uh, soybeans were the laggard, but they're well above breakout numbers now. So the food markets, which were not part of the commodity upside last year, are suddenly now the leaders in the commodity sector in terms of percent gain. And we think they'll remain that way probably this year with uh, some good double-digit percent possibilities on the upside. Uh, mm-hmm. So we, we see the shift, and uh, it, it's confusing when you look at price charts, but uh, we don't emphasize that. All right. Well, I mean, uh, you weren't faked out by that rally in gold uh, in 2012, I guess it was, back to 1780? Yeah, back to 1780, no. No, I mean, it's no. it intimidating we're, we're, looking, but momentum says no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, this is, the, this is the issue, and I've been watching your, yeah. your work here now for several years, 
uh, and I see it time and time again where momentum holds or, or you're you know basing your your decisions on your momentum work and it's just proven to me to be very very valuable and uh, just with a minute left then uh, Michael so you think the the T bond maybe just a quick comment on the T bond. Well, actually, what I'm enjoying more right now is uh, the other part of the debt markets, the high-yield market. Uh, there's yes. ETFs, HYG and Junk, JMK, yes. that are U.S. corporate. They're on the verge of uh, major downside breakage uh, on their quarterly momentum. And also uh, the REITs. Uh, there's a couple of REITs, uh, real estate investment trust ETFs, that are on the verge. And these are both uh, interest-sensitive uh, asset areas. Right. And the interesting thing is that... When they break major structures, stocks usually follow. Yeah. So I'm keen to watch uh, what HYG does this month and what uh, RWR, which is a REIT ETF, does this month. Because uh, already RWR is below levels it can't close the month at, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, HYG, the high-yield corporate ETF, is uh, uh, still slightly above breakage levels, but they're very close. And I'm convinced if they break, the stock market's going to catch cold following that. Uh, yeah. You know, be dragged down in the wake of that. Uh, and it's all part of uh, you know what T-Bond started last year on the downside in terms of mm-hmm. the price, uh, which is a, a yeah. bear trend as far as I'm concerned. Right. right, so you're convinced that we're in a new bear market for the T-Bonds, I, I guess a long-term mm-hmm. bear market mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've always been saying that probably the equity market will go once you know, once interest rates really start to rise and people are mm-hmm. convinced that they're rising, not for good reasons, but for but reasons. For other reasons, yes. Uh, other reasons. Uh, namely, we're going to be talking to Chris Hamilton later today, and we're finding out that the sources of funding of U.S. Treasuries are disappearing to a great extent. The foreign, mm-hmm. QE, uh, you know, old people's money tied up in, mm-hmm. uh, in Social Security is declining now. So there's some real reasons I can see from a fundamental reason why your technical uh, work on, on the T-bonds make a lot of sense. Well, we are out of time, Michael. Uh, thanks so much for being with us again. Oh, Always a pleasure you. to have you. You're very reassuring. You calm my nerves. I don't even need a psychiatrist now. I've got okay. Michael Oliver. Thanks, Michael. Well, thank you, and uh, look to it again sometime. Talk to you later. Well, next thanks. week, hopefully. All right. All right, folks. Well, don't go away. We're going to be right back uh, with Peter Talman, uh, President and CEO of Klondike Gold Corp. Really some interesting developments there with that company. They've, uh, it seems as though the uh, Mother Nature's puzzle is being unraveled to a great extent um, by Peter Talman and, and other geologists that work with him. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Talman. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. 
Known as one of Nevada's highest-grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by new range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well-financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX, symbol NRG. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have Peter Talman with me once again. Uh, Peter is a geologist. He's uh, a head of Klondike Gold Corp., and he's a lot of experience in exploring and developing projects uh, in many different places around the world, in Canada, Chile, Mexico, and Australia. Uh, And he's been involved in grassroots discovery and delineation of three mineral deposits over his career, and, um, well, he's just had a you know, very highly acclaimed, very highly regarded geologist when I talk to his peers. Uh, they have nothing but good things to say about Peter, so it's a pleasure having him with us. Thanks for joining me again, Peter. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be back. Always good to have you. I should mention that your uh, stock trades in Toronto, KG is a symbol. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol KDKGF. million shares out, and in U.S. money, about 26 cents, giving it a a really minuscule market cap of $18 million. So uh, I think people should keep that in mind when we talk about the prospects that you have here. We last had you on the show around February 14th of this year, I believe. That's the last time you were with us. And after that, just after that, you announced a $2 million exploration program for this year. Can you talk a little about that exploration program, Peter? What were the goals and the objectives of this year's exploration work. Well, I appreciate it. That was back then, and and it's been a long couple of months here. But you know, February, March, April, what we were looking at was drilling sixty holes on our very large property here in the Klondike, um, in the Yukon, um, uh, doing about five thousand soils, which would kind of regionally cover holes where we don't know anything about the uh, exploration potential, mapping and prospecting many of the areas that nobody's really been to or delivered any any results, and also doing a, a kind of a highfalutin 3D IP survey over the main zone of interest that we discovered late, late last year, which was Lone Star. So the what we thought was, you know, 50 to 60 holes for the year, the majority of them would be on this Lone Star potential discovery, uh, focus the 3D IP on that, but try to do generative exploration all the way through the 550 square kilometers of land that we have. Wow. It's a huge, uh, huge track of land you've got there. 
uh, one very positive factor that seems to me uh, to bode very well, and I think you talked about it back in February even, you put a, uh, a couple of holes down last year, I believe towards the end of the year, and you discovered the potential for a bulk mineable project instead of just a, a vein, high-grade vein target. There's some dissemination beyond the veins that give you the potential to do something on a bulk mining scale that could really enhance the economics. Can you talk a little bit about your press release today, which seems to enhance that idea even uh, more, Peter, if I understand what you put out today. Yeah, well, and that's uh, so appreciate it. So we're in the Klondike, which has produced in Placer 20 million ounces of gold. We own the entire district, so all the gravels that contain that 20 million ounces uh, we own the underlying rights to and basically all the highlands around and appreciate that all that gold is extracted just by simple gravity separation with water, so it's visible gold. Mm-hmm. And the Klondike is known for its visible gold, and so far, historically, it had been known for visible gold in quartz veins only, really. Um, and it's, I mean, many people appreciate that it's difficult to to build tons in quartz vein only deposits. They tend to be narrow and high grade, so your tonnage potential doesn't usually get to be big. They can be, but it's hard. So finding something that was bulk tonnage, uh, which is what we had at the end of last year, we had a, actually it was a PhD student suggest this one particular area and said, hey, have you looked there? Because there's disseminated gold in the rock. It's not just in the quartz vein. And so right at the end of the year, it started in late September, and we went into October drilling. And uh, you know, originally I decided to commit, I don't know, it was about half a dozen holes. We ended up drilling uh, 17, and 14 of them hit. Hmm. And, and basically we went so far as to say, okay, we, have, we didn't have any assays at that point. We just went, look, this looks good, and we could see visible gold through most of the stuff that we were drilling, and it looked wide. Um, so we were releasing those results in late November all the way through into mid-January, and, uh, and the results are really good. There is a, it's a, a relatively low grade. The best, the best hole was 2.4 grams over 37 meters, so whatever, over 100-odd feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all of them in, in aggregate averaged a gram and a half over 25 meters. Those are the 14 intersections. And that was drilled over a 700-meter strike length. Um, mm-hmm. All of it at surface, basically starting at surface, and that's, that's what we concentrated on. Uh, and so then we had this $2 million exploration budget that you alluded to earlier. That was just after I was on last. And we went, all right, well, we're, we'll try to develop this target. It is the first big bulk tonnage target that's been identified in the Klondike ever. Um, let's test that. But, you know, we've got to keep looking for other things. So we, started, we have been working for, I don't know, two months now. Um, and we've been drilling for over a month. And what's developed first was we had a we relogged the core that we drilled last year and realized that <laughs> the, the geology is continuous, which nobody had really managed to document before. And we could trace this disseminated unit all the way across the the Lone Star, or the Bonanza, the ridge above Bonanza Creek. Mm-hmm. And then we we went back and drilled it, and so the first. We've drilled 18 holes in total to date, and we announced the first two 
Hole's assay results this morning, and they were better than anything we drilled last year. And not only that, but we drilled, we did a step out of what we already knew. We went 50 meters away from where we, we knew there was stuff, and we hit it again with better results. And then we went behind the, the best hole as well and hit that and got better than we had last year as well. So, so that, it's, that, that, that's exciting from a number of different standpoints. Number one is that we have a consistent geological package that is mappable and we can trace it with a drill and it also has consistent grades, which is also fantastic. That's uh, really fantastic. In fact, that was one of the issues that I heard uh, you know, some of the skeptics talking about before was continuity and uh, if you've got that... Well, so, Peter, do you, do you think your, your main objective here now is to try to, to go for something on a bulk mineable uh, strategy? Is that, is that probably where you're headed with this? Or, or I guess you've got to take it step by step, right? This, this target is huge. And uh, I know you're going to talk about the rest of the news. This is only one aspect of the news release. But the, it, the, the target is it's very, very big. It's beyond what you would normally speculate about as looking for, you know, X. Uh, th- this is something that has potentially, I don't know, uh, it'll certainly be transformative for Klondike Gold. Um, I mean, part of the other part of the news release was, um, and I'm probably jumping ahead a bit, but we also took, we did wildcat drilling um, 700 meters away in one direction and half a kilometer, 500 meters away in the other direction, off in the middle of nowhere, both of those tests also hit, also hit visible gold, also hit mineralization like what we're getting in our main target area. Um, and so we have now almost two, 1.95, call it two kilometers, where we know this mineralization exists. We still don't have much information about it, but uh, I have lots of drill targets to go play with right now. In either direction, a long strike? In either direction and down dip. So uh-huh. we're two kilometers a long strike. We haven't begun drilling down dip yet on any of this stuff. That's about to begin now. Um, but, yeah, this is a significant target that, you know, well, when you look at all the other targets, like Kamenak had, you know, several three, four, five kilometers of potential target, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm looking at that right now on our one main target, and and we have multiple we have multiple things that look just like that. All right. Um, so it's my understanding that you've got you know you've got this dissemination that is being proven out now, but also that. You have a little better handle now in terms of structural controls for the higher grade stuff. Is that right? Yeah, both the higher and the lower, and and that's been the revel, revelationary aspect that's happened only in the last month and a half, as we've identified. Uh, it's a, a thrust fault, uh, and a, this is a low angle. It's a fault that lies underneath the package that's mineralized, and what's happening is the gold bearing fluids are being pumped along that fault, I think the San Andreas laid on its side, mm-hmm. and then coming off and up above it are these secondary faults. They're, they're, they're openings, they're extensional, and so the gold, the gold bearing fluids are being compressed and pumped along the, the underlying fault and are escaping up into these, these um, higher angle structures. 
and that's where we're finding that. And so the, the, where the, these higher angle structures, one of them at, at Lone Star I've called the Bonanza Fault, wherever that cuts the disseminated unit that we're finding, the, mm-hmm. that disseminated gold is hosted in a unit that's porous and permeable, so the fluid mm-hmm. can get in there easily, mm-hmm. and then it, then it precipitates, and it just comes out as, as flakes of gold, mm-hmm. uh, evenly disseminated through this 30 to 40 meter wide unit. Um, and as long as we follow that unit along or adjacent to the Bonanza Fault, we've been able to hit it and find visible gold. And that, just the proof, even just the the proof of drilling these two holes with similar assays is really important because, A, we have an exploration model that works. B, (laughs) it's a really big area with an immense amount of strike length potential, and, uh, and we can follow it. Yeah, talk a little bit about with just uh, about two minutes left. Uh, how much you have a lot of other targets, but your main focus is right in the long, Lone Star area right now, I guess, right? And that's yeah. So that's I mean, been, we we've drilled 750 meters now um, at more or less 50 meter centers. Most of those holes are still to become. We haven't. We have 14 holes coming uh, for assay from that. Uh, we've traced it by jumping out. Uh, another whatever 1,200 meters, so we have to infill through that, and then through geophysics we've traced that again another five kilometers. So we're looking at something at seven and a half or eight kilometers long. Mm. There's soil, golden soils along it, and some other indications that we should go there and do something. Um, and that's one structure. That's the Bonanza Fault structure. So let's call it eight kilometers length. Hmm. Then some of the work that we've done before that I've talked about that wasn't nearly as impressive, but it was we were learning. Uh, Nugget Zone had a from last year had an assay of five grams over fourteen meters in quartz vein only. But now what we know is that that is a structure about the same length as the Bonanza Fault structure. Where we drilled it, it's cutting impermeable rocks that aren't quite so porous. And mm-hmm. so it just created quartz veins, and it didn't alter the rock. Mm-hmm. So we have to follow that structure along to where it gets into these disseminated zones. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, have, we know we have four of those structures, each seven to eight kilometers in length, wow. um, that are above this thrust and controlled by it, and that are mineral. We've, we've drilled them already. We know their gold, their gold mineralization is there. We just have a better understanding of them now. So we're we're really we're on to something. That's and it's very big. Well you're on to something and you've got phase two, which you announced you're just starting phase two of this year's work program. With just a minute, uh, maybe two minutes if we squeeze it, Peter, how what do you expect to do with phase two? And then uh, are you well funded? I guess you have enough money to carry out this year's work, but um, you know, is there anything else you can think of that our listeners need to know about? Uh, we're in the middle of spending two. Well, we're in the early phases of spending two million bucks. So we have, as we originally budgeted, loads of money to do everything we want to this this summer and fall. We would still have at the end of the day three million dollars left in cash in December. Uh, so yeah, we're well funded. If I make discoveries that I, I if I can produce results that I expect, um, you know, I, I foresee trying to raise a larger pot of money at much higher prices, of course, um, to fund a very intensive program for the next two years. 
And so there'd be a, a fairly major expansion of the exploration program, many more drills, lots of other geophysics um, mm. as potential. But, uh, you know, first things first, the phase two of this year uh, is going to be another 20 holes, and they're now more or less focused on extending the Lone Star target into these outlying other discoveries that we've just made. Um, so that we can prove that we have a two-kilometer strike length, not a 750-meter strike length that's mineralized. And we're also going to mm-hmm. do some undercuts to prove it goes to depth. And what mm-hmm. we're really trying to do is outline the, the beginnings of what may potentially be a, an open pit resource if cows fly. So we've got <laughs> a lot to do before we get through this year. Well, I don't think we have to wait for cows to fly. I think we. <laughs> I, I like to think it's a little more certain than that, Peter. Uh, so, what what should in, what should people be watching for then? I guess drill results. You won't come up with a resource this year yet. No, we're well. I, no, we we certainly won't. Um, we may. I'm contemplating getting a, a second drill. That that's right now contemplation. But what's going to happen mm-hmm. is. Every week, or at the most two weeks, we're going to have drill results right through to November, um, maybe into the new year, um, plus other exploration results. Because we do actually get lost in this. We have other targets that we're we're having success with, um, and we're, we've got to. <laughs> I'm going to try to get over and actually test things like at Gold Run. It's 50 kilometers away from Lone Star, but it looks the mm. same. It's just wow. early days yet. Oh. Very exciting indeed, Peter. Thanks so much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime as your program continues to progress. Thank you. All right, folks. So don't go away. We'll be right back uh, with Chris Hamilton. First time on our show. I'm really looking forward to talking to Chris. Um, Stick around. I think you'll really find him of interest. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm happy to have with me for the first time Chris Hamilton. Chris is the author of the blog spot. Uh, it's economic, Economica. Let's see if I can pronounce that. Economica. Blogspot.com. Uh, and I would encourage you to jot it down. Economica. Uh, help me out, Chris. Economica. How do you pronounce that? Economica. Economica, E-C-O-N-O-M-I-C-A dot blogspot dot com. Chris lives in Oregon uh, with his family after having worked uh, for Nike and Adidas for 20 years, including expat tours in Taiwan, South Korea, and Germany. Following the global financial crisis, he had questions about our financial and economic system and found the conventional wisdom offered incomplete and inadequate. Well, congratulations, Chris, for that, because an awful lot of people just kept drinking the Kool-Aid. No matter what they're told on the mainstream media, they tend to believe it. Well, after a a decade of research and investigation, Chris has made the case for an alternative narrative of what ails the global economy, although the solutions are far more elusive. In his blog, he brings some of those interesting and novel insights uh, about the United States economy uh, to his readers. And uh, so, Chris, I'm really glad you could join me today. Jay, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's so good to have you. I, I, I like people who think, people who don't just drink the Kool-Aid, buy, you know, buy what they're told on the mainstream media, but who do their own thinking. And it seems to me, you know, somebody said, if everybody thinks alike, then nobody's thinking. And it seems to me that's what's going on to a great extent. So it's people like you that, that are available uh, on the Internet to talk to and to read. And uh, so it's, it's really good to have you with me. I, I have enjoyed many of your blog spots, and, and they've really made a lot of sense to me, and that's why I really wanted to have you on on my show. Now, the Fed is raising rates, it seems to me. I, I think that you and I are in agreement that the economy isn't perhaps all that the Janet Yellen makes it out to be and claims it to be, or whoever's in the White House claims it to be under their watch. Uh, last week, when I invited you onto the show, you wrote back to me and said, I do have one request. I think to understand the context under which I question the treasury or equity or commodity markets, I'd like to start by explaining why such seemingly strange actions are taking place. End of quote. Then you proceeded to show me a couple of charts that revealed a declining U.S. population. Can you talk about the impact that population growth or lack thereof has on economic growth? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, Yeah, I think when we, I mean, most broadly in a but uh, if you look over 10,000 years, population growth on planet Earth grew from 0.2 to 0.4% at a fairly constant rate until you got up to about 1850. Then suddenly the population growth increased uh, from about half of a percent all the way until 1970 when it peaks at about 2.2% annually. Mm. Since 1970, population growth has been decelerating rapidly. Global mm-hmm. population growth is decelerating now down to just about 1% annually. Um, and, and when you look at the actual makeup of that, what's happening is that, um, I mean, in fact, if you look at just births, 
they peaked in 1990 uh, mm. and have been flatlining since. So, you know, I think when you, when you look at the headwaters of what's going on, the, the population of young in the, in the world have ceased growing. The mm-hmm. populations of old, uh, you know, are growing rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so when we see massive uh, numbers about overpopulation in the world, what we actually are seeing is the longevity of the older generations versus the non-growth mm-hmm. of the younger generations. And this has been going on, um, you know, obviously nations like Japan and Germany uh, were at the forefront, uh, and they've been declining birth rates uh, for uh, almost 70 years now. Mm. And those numbers are clearly coming through in their total population now, that they're declining. Um, and if you look more specifically at the U.S., what you'll, what you'll see if you take the adult population growth, so I take basically the, the 20 to 60-year, 15 to 64-year-old population growth, mm-hmm. the annual population growth. Mm-hmm. And when you chart that out, you realize it's basically a mirror of the federal funds rate. So the annual growth of the population and the demand they represent, the, the growth, the change in demand, is essentially the same curve as the federal funds rate peaking right about 1981, decelerating since. Uh, and now, as of this year, uh, a bit of a shock and a surprise, but the 0 to 64-year-old population in the U.S. appears to be declining, which was mm. not supposed to happen. Uh, mm. the, you know, according to the census, we were still supposed to be growing, uh, and that was America's um, sort of ace in the hole was our strong demographics. But, um, you know, the fertility numbers came out uh, last week, and the U.S. has the lowest fertility rate on a record. And then, secondarily, the, the immigration numbers, uh, particularly illegal immigration, uh, started slowing rapidly in 2009, and much to do with uh, a mismatch of the jobs that were being created here. Uh, which were no longer low-skill, low-education uh, jobs. We needed highly skilled, highly educated people. Uh, and so, as a consequence, illegal immigrants slowed their, uh, their immigration to the U.S. And particularly once Trump became president, I think a lot of his uh, job-owning certainly scared a lot of the illegal immigrants. And we've actually had uh, a large net outflow uh, on a mm. net basis of illegals since, uh, oh. in fact, all, all the way back to 2009, but it's picked up speed uh, in the most recent uh, year. And so on a, on a total basis, the 0 to 64-year-old population looks to be declining this year. Huh. And obviously that's right there with the 0% or now 1% interest rates. Uh, that curve, again, is very much mirroring each other. Population growth, interest rates, the, uh, the intent of the decline in interest rates is to incent uh, a decelerated population to take on more debt to maintain the same growth curve. Wow. So do you, do you think the Fed has, has any understanding of this? Do you think that, they, that they're looking at this? Or are they ignoring it or they don't want to know about it? Or, or what are your thoughts on that? Does the Fed understand this? They, they, I don't know how they couldn't because the numbers that I use are their numbers. Um, and, and I, I use their, uh, their data. They collect it uh, along with the UN, and, and they warehouse. They, they have all of this data sitting there. Um, you 
know, I think for me to believe that some of the smartest uh, academics in the world would not be aware of the most simple and uh, most easily understood um, means of future consumption, which is just count how many people there are, count their income, count the growth in their uh, savings and, and obviously their access to credit, and you can pretty quickly figure out where demand's going. I don't hear anybody else, uh, maybe one other person, I'm trying to think, um, uh, Dent is his last name, um, who, who's been talking about this. I can't, I can't recall his first name now. Um, he's, he's pretty well known. He's been talking about and predicting declining economics, the declining stock market as a result of this declining population. But yeah. other than, uh, than this fellow Dent and yourself, I, I've not heard many people talking about this, and yet it makes so much sense. Why, why do you think it's being ignored if it's so obvious? Uh, you know, I think part of the problem is that it's, um, there's, there's very little that can be done about it from an mm-hmm. uh, economic standpoint, in that mm-hmm. a decelerating population, and now, uh, you know, if I, if I go more broadly, if I take uh, basically the... The OECD nations, which is obviously most of Europe, America, Canada, uh, and uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, anyway, as well as China, Russia, and Brazil. I take those nations. They basically consume 70% of the world's oil. They consume about 80% of the world's exports. Their population growth peaked in 1972 at 30 million. I should say their under 65-year-old population growth. Mm-hmm. peaked uh, at plus 30 million a year. Next year, it begins declining. So the population with all of the income, all of the savings, all the access to credit that does all the consumption begins outright declining. Mm. And then you, you put that against, obviously, their 65-plus-year-old populations, which are still surging because they're living a decade or two longer than their previous generations. Mm. And you see the, the real mismatch that you have a huge number of of sellers, you know, from a obviously sure asset standpoint, you have a declining number of buyers. So it's in that context where you start to understand why the Federal Reserve or other central banks and, and federal governments would be taking the the sort of uh, seemingly crazy steps they're taking to maintain asset prices because you simply have a mismatch, and, and this mismatch is getting much worse, and it will get much worse. Um, and, and why why they would take the course that they have, uh, knowing that this was coming, and, and it's very easily seen. Uh, I, I I can't really understand, but, but well, I'll, I mean, <laughs> the, the, uh, I guess uh, people get very angry when the stock market goes down. We've seen in the past whenever we've had equity market declines, uh, you know, after two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Whenever uh, David Stockman, who's been on this show, would call it a hissy fit when the stock market would decline, and immediately you'd have Federal Reserve people coming out and talking dovishly about sure. uh, money creation, and it seems to me that they must be under a great amount of pressure to try to keep the party going. No, yeah, absolutely, and and I, I mean to be honest, I think uh, I think it's Harry Dent, and, and I think I think we. We differ. Uh, I believe that the stock market's going to continue to rise, not because things are good, but actually because things are quite bad, uh, and that it's uh, sort of, you know, I don't think any 
politician or any uh, central banker wants to be at the helm when things go down. Um, you know, nobody wants to be blamed for it. So um, I would anticipate it will continue to rise, and, and not because things are happy or good, or, but because things are actually quite bad and getting worse. Well, that's been the direction. Things are bad and getting worse, and yet the equity markets continue to rise. Could we talk a little bit about the mechanics of that? You talked about the normalization, uh, that this is not a normal cycle. And uh, One of the articles that you wrote, you said um, uh, rates, have actually begun, rates have actually begun to rise, but you pointed out that the cycle rate increase is unlike anything that we've seen before. Uh, can you elaborate on that, and, and, and what is the Fed doing, and maybe talk a little bit about the mechanics of this excess reserves. They're trying sure. to keep the excess reserves in place, I guess, uh, yeah. rather than leaking out into the economy. So if they keep them in place and the banks have access to them and they're used in the financial markets, driving prices up, if the excess reserves were be, to be lent out by the banks, then you'd actually have the real economy might start to grow, or you'd have hyperinflation, possibly. What are your thoughts? Well, it's it, so you know. Obviously, in this rate hikes or this this QE period uh, from 2008 forward, the banks uh, or the Federal Reserve went and purchased assets from these banks mm-hmm. and and gave them uh, cash for these assets. But basically, told the banks they needed to hold the, all of those uh, all that QE money that the Fed mm-hmm. basically created from nothing, gave to mm-hmm. the banks for those assets. But told those banks that those dollars will stay in the Federal Reserve Bank, and they're your dollars, but they're going to be held there mm-hmm. uh, rather than have that two and a half trillion dollars immediately enter the economy and then be leveraged up, you know, whether it be five or ten times. Sure. Uh, so the idea was okay. That that money will stay there now. Now, once we came to the rate hike cycle, that's where the Fed had its uh, idea. It's sort of a uh, experimentation here, that rather than uh, removing that $2.5 trillion from those banks, as it normally would do during a rate hike cycle, it would buy a few assets, it would, uh, or sorry, pull a few assets back yeah. and over some money. Now, this time, it's, um, the idea is that they will pay interest on those excess reserves mm-hmm. to those banks not to lend that money, mm-hmm. not to uh, let that money leave. And they'll have to pay each hike is uh, billions more for the banks mm-hmm. not sure. to lend that money out and not yeah. to have it leave the Federal Reserve. So wow. this this rate hike cycle is really different uh, than previous cycles, where uh, a minor adjustment of a few billion dollars uh, plus or minus would change overnight lending rates, which would then trickle through the entire interest rate curve. Now mm-hmm. it's entirely opposite, where we're going to pay. Uh, maybe thirty, forty, fifty billion annually to banks not to lend that money. It's a totally, incredible. Yeah, it's a very different, uh, and I think there's not much discussion about how the, and, what, and whether this is actually working. Um, because clearly, we've seen that, that the short-term rates have risen. I think now maybe to 125 basis points, but the long-term rates have been uh, very sluggish to react to mm-hmm. this n- new experimental means of trying to push interest rates higher. It just, it seems like, almost like the policies for the farming sector, uh, you know, paying farmers not to grow crops, it's paying bank bankers not to lend money. Yeah, and it's just, paying, just, yeah, the very largest banks, 
because uh, these are these are not the small uh, or mid-tier banks. These are the large, large banks uh, who uh, typically would hold tre- treasuries or mortgage-backed securities that the that the Fed had purchased. Uh, and, and now we are paying the largest sort of a, a royalty for doing nothing. So, Chris, do you think that the fear of of the Fed then in allowing this these excess reserves to make their way into the system is hyperinflation? That you'd start to get loans and money and demand in the economy that would start to bid up prices? Is that what you they're know, afraid I, of? I think, I think, yeah, the, the big fear, I think, would be, well, we haven't seen large um, loan creation. Uh, you know, obviously, the mortgages are still... Um, no higher than they were in 2008. Uh, mm-hmm. So the main drivers of economic growth that where this money would go, there's just not that many um, credible, uh, credit-worthy uh, borrowers. So the money, uh-huh. I think the great fear is that it would go uh, into the financial markets and it would be That's- leveraged, um, which I guess if, if you basically simply look at the Fed's balance sheet, while the Fed was rate, uh, buying QE, performing their, uh, their purchases, the bank's uh, excess reserves moved almost in a one-to-one fashion. Since mm-hmm. QE ended at the end of 2014, um, it's been the bank's excess reserves that have been declining while the Fed has been maintaining its balance sheet. So uh, almost $800 billion of those excess reserves slipped out. Uh, and it, and that I think is what has been driving much of the stock market rise since QE ended, uh, because it was sort of QE by another means. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I think the Fed has, has been getting concerned that that's maybe gone too far, and mm-hmm. so they as they started hiking rates, I think it was with this uh, idea of raising interest on excess reserves, paying the banks to hold their money at the Fed and not to put it back into the financial markets. And, and since the, the Fed has been raising rates, uh, we've seen uh, $200 billion go back into the, uh, the Federal Reserve to be held as excess reserves, and the, the total amount now is over $2.2 trillion. Or, so it's mm-hmm. rising again based on those rising interest on excess reserves. Okay, so the real economy can't really get any, uh, can't get any strength or can't get any meaningful strength because of this population issue, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, you know, I was just going to kind of try and maybe bring this around because if you don't have a growing population and you already have uh, a lot of overcapacity in the uh, real economy, you have mm-hmm. a lot of um, factories, you have, and, and you have so much technology and innovation which we yeah. figured out how to do things uh, with fewer people, with fewer factories, and, and we're, we're much more creative in how we do things. And so, you know, there's a lot of different um, pieces at play here that, that are basically slowing um, the growth of the economy. And in the, as the Fed, <laughs> there's, just, there's too many pieces here that are moving uh, against the Fed. And, yeah. and so, anyways, it's a, it's a very... Well, situation. Chris, Chris, with just with less than a minute left, uh, you've got this enormous amount of debt now that needs to be repaid. How is that going to be repaid, and how are we going to avoid some sort of? How is the Fed going to avoid some sort of a massive deflation? You got thirty seconds to answer that complicated question. 
Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I think the U.S. has not been concerned about repaying its its debt for, uh, since 1970. We haven't made any payments to the federal debt, uh, and the idea, you know, so long as interest rates, I think interest rate movements will be minor, um, given the debt, given the declining population, given that the the interest rate curve follows the population curve. Interest rates mm-hmm. will not go far. They will interesting go down. Very interesting, very insightful. Thank you very much, uh, Chris, for being with us. I wanted to ask you what we should all be doing. Maybe we'll have to have you back sometime in the future to discuss that. Thank you so much for being with us today and look forward to doing it again sometime if you're willing and able. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, James Turk, the chairman of Gold Money, will be with us. Uh, Cooper Quinn of Osprey Gold Development also, and hopefully we'll have Michael Oliver back with us. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.